once again for our evening Bible study. Before we start, I would request Pastor Prem to lead us in a time of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. We thank you for helping us to come this uh, midday of the week. <coughs> Lord, to be together, yes, to be in your yes, presence, Lord. to study yes, your word. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you bless Pastor, anoint him, Lord, give him your wisdom, your insight, your Holy Spirit, uh, uh, revelation, and we will be able to learn through your servant. Yes, Jesus. Minister to us, speak to us, and let these words come forth, O God, Master, with such power and authority and clarity. Father, we will be changed, we will be transformed. Father, and help us to know that uh, the things that are written in the book of Revelation, Lord, is uh, to prepare us, oh God, Master, for a great uh, life with you in the future. Amen. Thank you once again for this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must take place. As usual, any questions you have, uh, please use the chat box. Uh, the more the questions, the better it is, because your questions make us think and we learn from one another. We have just completed three chapters and today we'll be looking at the fourth chapter, John's vision of God and the Lamb. Revelation, it will start from chapter 4 till the end of chapter 5, that is 14 verses. Now, if you just think about chapters 2 and 3, basically, we were in this place, in the Western Asia Minor. We were looking at the seven letters written to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We were basically in this world, in this earth, or specifically in West Asia Minor. But chapters 4 and 5 will take us to heaven because chapter 4 and 5 describes the vision John had uh, in chapters 4 and 5. Now, when we talk about heaven, uh, we see there's an unprecedented fascination these days among both Christians as well as non-Christians with the afterlife. People are fascinated what's going to happen after death. So there are many books. Books have been written on supposed after or some people's near-death experience. I was about to die or I died, I went to heaven. And uh, there are TV programs which talks about the mysterious realm of the supernatural. You know, people often talk about, uh, you know, the angels came and their interaction with the human beings. Uh, it is not only amongst Christians, even amongst non-Christians. They say we visited heaven and we have come back to tell of our experiences. And very often we are all excited to read their experiences. Incidentally, in the Bible, there are only two accounts of people who are actually taken there in visions. Uh, one was Apostle Paul. He talks about being transported to the third heaven, but he says, I was forbidden 
to speak of what I saw there. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 to 4, he says, And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, the second man, man was Apostle John. But he, he, John also had the privilege of visiting heaven. But unlike Paul, John was permitted to give a detailed description of the vision, which the, the, the focus of chapters 4 and 5 is all about his vision in heaven. In these two chapters, he basically describes the throne of God and of the lamp of God. That's all he's doing in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, how many visions has John had from chapters 1 to 3? How many visions has John had from chapters 1 to 3? You can use the chat box or you can use your mic and you can answer. How many visions has John had from chapters one to three? Pastor, what's the answer? Okay, Asha, what's the answer? One vision is what people are saying, Pastor. Yeah, it's right. John has had only one vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. The one vision that we saw in chapter 1 from verses 12 to 17. Now, until now, the symbols in Revelation have been uh, relatively straightforward and their meaning relatively easy to understand. But here onwards, the symbols will become more difficult and complex. However, as I told you in the beginning, by using a disciplined imagination, one can follow the author's meaning at least to some degree. We'll try to follow that. Now, this is going to be the second vision. Uh, the first vision was in chapter 1, verses 11 to 7, 12 to 17. Now, this will be John's second vision, Revelation 4 to 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, what does the phrase after this signify? What does the phrase after this signify? After the first vision, Pastor? Yeah. After this, uh, functions as a transition device, what we call in uh, you know, while reading the uh, biblical literature. After this, in the book of Revelation, 
It signifies, uh, we call it as a transition device. So whenever there is the next vision, you find this word after this. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Revelation 7 to 9, after this I looked. That means he's talking about a new vision. Revelation 15, 5, after this I looked. He's talking about another vision. Revelation 18, 1, after this I saw another angel. That's another vision. Uh, Revelation 19, 1, after this I heard. So basically, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, is talking about a new vision. The second vision, we can call it. And it says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. You know, and the voice uh, he heard like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. Now, in the Greek language, uh, when we read in, Eng in the English language, we say it was a door standing open in heaven. Uh, in Greek language, actually what open signifies is it remains open. That's the way in, in the Greek language, the door uh, remains open in heaven. In other words, you know, it's, it's an invitation to John to see the glorious presence of God in heaven. In other words, he's going to, it's an invitation for revelation. So that's the door standing open in heaven. Whenever the door is open in heaven, it's talking about a revelation. Uh, we have in Revelation 11, 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. So when we read open means there's going to be a revelation. There's going to be something new. In 19.1, I saw heaven standing open. So it's all, uh, it's talking about uh, new revelation. Now, open heaven, because a door standing open in heaven. Now, the open heaven follows an important Old Testament pattern for such visions. Where do we find this? This is not the first time we are seeing open heaven in the book of Revelation. Jacob's incident. Do you find the word open heaven? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Yes, Pastor, you are right. Ezekiel 1 1 says, in my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. You know, we know Ezekiel, the visions. Uh, the, basically, now the heaven was open means uh, it is a, an invitation to John. Come see the glory of heaven. Come and see the splendor and majesty of heaven. That's, that's the invitation that we find. Now, there is another uh, verse, it says in 4.1, come up here. Does come up remind you of any other incident in the Old Testament? Moses unto Mount Sinai. Yes, right. Come up, you know, God's call to Moses 
to come up to the mountain of uh, Sinai. Exodus 24:12. The Lord said to Moses, "Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction." You also have in uh, Exodus 34:2. You have be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. Now, Revelation uh, 4.2, the next verse says, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The moment he heard the trumpet voice, John heard this trumpet voice earlier also. In the first vision also, he heard the trumpet voice. Then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the moment he heard the trumpet voice, he once again, he sensed he was in the spirit. He was in the spirit. And it is it's kind of awareness that his spirit is right now in heaven. That's the kind of awareness he, he has. And that's the reason he's able to respond to the invitation, come up here. Because that, that spirit, which enables him to have that kind of vision. So the, the moment he enters the heaven, he is looking at the, at the throne, the majesty of the throne. And he sees Lord God Almighty seated on the throne. Uh, sometimes people write uh, very minor things about heaven. Uh, we really don't know whether they had really been to heaven or not. But here, John is writing about his vision. The moment he enters the heaven, he is seeing the glory and splendor of God. Heaven is a place where God is there, and he is seeing that glory and splendor of God. Now the problem comes, how can he describe that? What he has seen, you know, Paul said, inexpressible things. In other words, he just cannot explain, Paul said. But here, John was permitted to write, but how can he write? Because he is looking for words and he finds the earthly language is highly limited when it comes to describing the heavenly realities. Listen to this carefully. Now, he is seeing the throne of God, God being seated on the throne, and it is so glorious. And it is, it is majestic. The grandeur of God is something which is unable to express. But he's trying his best to express it in the earthly language, fully understanding, fully knowing, realizing that the earthly language is limited when it comes to describing the heavenly realities. Because heavenly reality far surpasses the earthly symbol. So he is looking for earthly symbols to describe the heavenly realities. 
and this was the experience of Ezekiel also. In Ezekiel 1.26, it says, Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Now, how do you explain this? How do you understand this? All you can say is, this is the picture of lapis lazuli. So he's just exp expressing, explaining glory of the throne room. And he's just, he could only think of these precious stones. And he's just trying to describe the heaven. And it's difficult. Uh, Ezekiel 1, uh, 28 says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Now, John is trying to describe heaven, the, the grandeur of God in human language. So we should understand there are going to be limitations and we'll try to understand as much as possible. Revelation 4.3 says, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, we know gold, silver, bronze, copper, iron. These are the things we know. Uh, probably they were very familiar with jasper and ruby. So a jasper will, something, uh, will look something like this. And uh, the ruby will look something like this. Now, Remember, the Jewish writers, uh, they, they were hesitant to uh, describe God. They were very careful. He, so John is not going to give us any descriptive detail. Uh, they, so no form is visible. Uh, and John will refrain from even mentioning the name of God. As you go through this vision, he will not even mention the name of God. He only says, one seated on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Uh, these are two precious or semi-precious stones. Uh, there are several kinds of stones in ancient times, what they called as Jasper. Uh, probably John had in mind something like a transparent uh, type of jasper. How do we say transparent type of jasper? Because in Revelation 21, 10 to 11, he says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That's all we can make out. Now, what do you think uh, jasper refers to? What do you think jasper refers to? Precious. Precious, yes. Glory. Glory, yes. Light. Yes. 
radians somebody has put chandrasekhar has put radians yeah radians anything else thank you for all the answers uh where your polished jasper uh, it actually sparkles and flashes with luminous splendor so it is it's a kind of a poetic way of describing the holiness and glory of god the holiness and glory of god so when he says uh, appearance of jasper it is basically it's as the holiness and glory of god now what do you think ruby refers to basically a you know it's a deep uh, reddish in color so when one holds a ruby in one hand it seems as though a fire is smoldering inside the stone a good stone if you take uh, it'll be like that probably we are only saying probably maybe john wants to suggest in addition to the holiness of god god also burns in wrath against sin uh, we it's it's probably okay we are not very certain in case if this is what john uh, means by these two stones he had the appearance of a jasper and ruby uh, it 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 goes well with other uh, biblical description description about god we know god is holy and we also know uh, god's wrath against sin so it appears like that uh, we can only uh, say to that extent now the precious uh, the precise identification of these stones uh, it's it's just uncertain let's be very clear about it the precise identification of some of these precious stones is uncertain because uh, in the in the book of exodus uh, we come across 12 types of stones 28 17 to 20 we read 12 types of stones then mount uh, then mount four rows of precious stones on it the first row shall be carnelian uh, chrysolite and beryl uh, the second row shall be turquoise lapis lazuli and emerald the third row shall be jacinth agate and amethyst the fourth row shall be topaz onyx and jasper so we are not very familiar with these stones uh, so we are not very sure about the precise identification and in revelation 43 he says a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne <clears throat> now the moment a, a jewish person heard the word rainbow he will immediately think about noah's floods so it was it is god's covenant 
of God's, um, the covenant of God's mercy with people. Because God said, hereafter, I will not destroy you with flood. In, in Genesis 9-11, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then in 9.13, it says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. <clears throat> it's a sign of covenant between me and the earth. In other words, he's saying God is merciful in all that he does. Because just... Um, for John, just having a glimpse of God's glory is he felt as though he's going to be consumed. We know the story of Moses, show me your glory, what happened. So for John is also in such a place. So the rainbow is conveys something that God is merciful in all that he does. Now, this is the color of emerald. Now, John knows... <clears throat> the colors of rainbow. But here he's saying a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. In other words, he says the rainbow was green in color. So all that we could try to make out is after seeing the brilliance of God's holiness and the heat of God's wrath against sin, probably John is being comforted by the assurance of divine mercy. Green color is a very soothing color. Probably the color uh, represents that God is merciful in all that he does. Now, if, if we take all this, and when we compare with the teachings elsewhere in the scripture, uh, it fits very well with the theology. Uh, the only God is holy. Uh, we have no doubt about it. We know that God is holy. Uh, we know God's wrath against sin. We know that. And we also know God is merciful. So as far as the theology is concerned, uh, whatever description John gives us, it fits very well uh, with the theology in the rest of the uh, scriptures. So this this is supposed to uh, encourage the persecuted Christians. God is merciful. God is merciful in all that he does. And he's talking about the majesty and splendor and the power of God. And that's what John wants to convey uh, to the people of his time that God's splendor is something that which we cannot even describe, which we cannot even comprehend. Uh, his throne room is beyond expression, that we cannot express the glory and the splendor of the throne room. And in the midst of all this, God is merciful. Uh, that's what he wants to convey. And in Revelation 4 and 4, surrounding the throne, were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? 
uh, two options. One is um, the 12 tribes uh, and uh, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And the other one is it's a representation of uh, you know, all the, the earlier saints of God. Okay, Pastor. Thank you. We'll have a look. Anybody else? Anyone wants to make any guess? Divya uh, from you, as she said, uh, 12 apostles. And uh, Ashta, 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. These 24, uh, thank you all for your uh, responses. These 24 elders uh, may represent the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Uh, thereby symbolizing the two covenants of the people of God. It's like the Old Testament and the New Testament coming together. It may represent. And they were all wearing, um, they were all dressed in white. It's, it's, it's the dress of kingly priests. Uh, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Uh, the crowns of gold basically to say they were reigning. They were, they were ruling. Uh, that's the kind. Now, there, there is also another possibility because elders basically represents people with authority in Old Testament cities. There is a possibility. In all probability, it may also refer to 24 courses of the Levitical priests. 24 courses of the Levitical priests. Anyone can make a guess? As well as 24 divisions of singers in the temple. Where do we find this? 24 courses of the Levitical priests and 24 divisions of singers in the temple. It is there in First Chronicles. If you read in chapter 24, you come across 24 courses of the Levitical priests. In chapter 25, it refers to 24 divisions of singers in the temple. I said it may represent. Uh, we are not very certain about this. It may represent 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. Uh, now, in Revelation 4, 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Imagine you go to heaven and this is what you get to see. Thunder. Uh, the children sometimes they go under the bed when they hear this noise and this is the flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, now, this kind of uh, visible and audible manifestations of God's presence was seen by Moses on Mount Sinai. Both visible as well as audible manifestations of God's presence. 
uh, when he says lightning rumbling peals of thunder basically is talking about the presence of god because in exodus 19:16 it's uh, it says on the morning of the third day there were thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast everyone in the camp trembled now in the hebrew poetry the thunderstorm suggests god's presence and majesty so when i was because if you read um, in the book of samuel first samuel 2:10 the most high will thunder from heaven the lord will judge the ends of the earth will thunder from heaven uh, let's go to the next verse revelation 4:6 also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal uh, where do we find the reference to sea of glass in the old testament is there a reference to sea of glass in the old testament if so where do we find that in first kings 723 he made the sea of cast metal circular in shape measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high and in first chronicles 46 he then made 10 basins for washing and placed five on the south side and five on the north and then the things to be used for the burnt offerings were rinsed but the sea was to be used by the priests for washing now when we come across this phrase sea of glass in the book of revelation uh, we should realize it is only metaphorical it is only figurative it is only symbolic because there is no sea in heaven we should keep this in mind uh, we should not insist that there is a sea of glass in heaven it is purely symbolic and it's purely figurative that's why we say we say it is metaphorical because in revelation 21:1 it says then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea uh, earlier also i have said in apocalyptic literature or in apocalyptic visions uh, they are always very fluid you should not say in this vision he says this so it is linked to this vision because if they want to emphasize on one particular issue they say something but we should not um, extend it too far uh, so basically when they are talking about god's heavenly throne uh, or god's heavenly temple they always have the earthly temple reflecting the heavenly one uh, we remember when moses was asked to uh, build a tabernacle uh, god god told him clearly god showed him the tabernacle and god told him exactly the way you have seen you should build your tabernacle so the temple is basically the place where god 
reigned, or in other words, it was his heavenly throne as far as the earthly temple was concerned in the Old Testament. Because in Psalm 11.4, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. So the temple and heavenly throne are almost synonymous. Now, John's entire emphasis in this book is on worship. So because the emphasis is on worship, uh, it leads to a portrayal of God's throne exclusively in temple terms. If you see this entire, if you see the book, the book of Revelation, his entire emphasis is on worship of God. So he's going to bring the temple imagery uh, quite often. Uh, in other words, you can see an altar of incense, uh, Revelation 5.8. We know uh, uh, the incense was burnt in the temple. So in 5.8, he says, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before it. The four living uh, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they're holding golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of God's people. Now, an altar of sacrifice. When you open the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The ark, Revelation eleven nineteen. then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of the covenant. So basically, God, John's focus is worship of God and he's going to use this temple imagery often. Uh, so the temple functioned as God's throne in the Old Testament. Now, John says he saw like a sea of glass, uh, like crystal. Now, in Ezekiel 1.22, spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a world sparkling like crystal and awesome. Exodus 24.10, and God and saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. John is probably, he knows the Old Testament so well. So he's referring to these passages to stress the magnificence of the throne and the distance still remaining between him and the throne. There is a distance and he wants to maintain that. In Revelation 4, 6, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and, and in back. Now, these four living creatures, this is not the first time uh, we are coming across uh, in, in the Bible, because in the book of Ezekiel, we come across these figures. They represent the cherubim, uh, though John also supplies some of the features of the seraphim from Isaiah's vision of God. So he takes both. Uh, the cherubim were covered with eyes because in Ezekiel eleven twelve it says the entire bodies 
including their backs, their hands, and their wings were completely full of eyes, as were their four wheels. Now in Isaiah 6.2, we see above him were seraphim, with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. When we think of angels, we should think of angels as some uh, weak uh, or weak figures. As for these angels, um, the way John has portrayed, they are powerful agents. They were God's strong agents representing power over all the earth. These angels, cherubims, they had power over all the created world. So in Revelation 4-7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. What do these four living creatures represent? What do these four living creatures represent? Jake, uh, Roshan is saying the Gospels, four Gospels. Okay, thank you, Roshan. Anybody else? Anybody else? <clears throat> Angelic beings, Asha. Angelic being, okay. It's a uh, strength, strength. Gautaman to strength. Strength, okay. Thank you, Gautaman. Thank you, Asha. Now, the four creatures, somebody else is also. God's Army, Divya, God's Army. The four creatures in John's vision have the appearance of a lion, an ox, a human being, and a flying eagle. Basically, these symbolize uh, the noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in creation. Uh, if you're looking at lion, ox, man, and a flying eagle. What happened in subsequent centuries? after many centuries, they started associating these four figures with four evangelists. Uh, that was not there in the beginning. It has come along the way after several centuries. Uh, the man with Matthew, the lion with Mark, the ox with Luke, and the eagle with John. Uh, now, it is, it is only a fanciful association and uh, there are many uh, Christian art which represent these four Gospels in this way, but it is not biblical. Uh, this has come along the way. Now, when the other way of looking at these four living creatures is uh, it in relation to the created world. Now, the lion represents wild creatures the ox, domestic animals, the eagle, flying creatures, 
and man the pinnacle of creation. In other words, it covers the entire gamut of creation. Uh, now in Revelation 4.8, it says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now they had eyes in front and in back, we saw in Revelation 4.6, and they were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now covered with eyes, basically it says, uh, it's, it's like unsleeping watchfulness. These beings are watching. Uh, they are perceiving everything that's happening in all direction. So you cannot draw a diagram to show this. But the function of these four living creatures are mentioned 14 times in the book of Revelation. And we can see most often they function as choir masters. In other words, they orchestrate all public worship in heaven, constantly praising God, enthroned in majesty. That's the way they function. Now, there are six wings. They had six wings. The six wings denote their supreme responsibility and privilege is to constantly worship God. Now, from Isaiah's vision, we learn that the seraphim use their wings uh, in the following manner. Uh, in Isaiah 6-2, they also had six wings, and this is how they used. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. What do these six wings represent? What do these six wings represent? No one wants to make a guess? No. Yes, Pastor, you want to make a guess? No, no. <laughs> now, four of, this, four of their six wings related to worship. If you see this verse carefully, uh, with two wings, they covered their faces. Uh, in other words, even the most exalted created beings cannot look on the unveiled glory of God without being consumed. You know, when, uh, when the sunshine is very sharp, we just close our eyes or if if there is a powerful light hitting our eyes, what we do, we just cover our eyes. So the glory of God is so bright that even these exalted beings cannot just see. So with two wings, they cover their faces. That's the glory of God is beyond. Uh, they feel that 
uh, they'll be consumed. So they, they, they'll be blinded. So they have to cover their eyes. And with the two wings, they covered their feet because they realize that they are standing on the holy ground. So they cover their feet and with two wings they fly. In other words, their entire mission or their entire calling is worship. If you're looking at cherubim, and seraphim, their, their, it's their privilege, calling and permanent occupation. Worship is their privilege calling and permanent occupation. Now, how many hymns or praise are there in this vision? Chapters four and five. How many hymns of praise are there in this vision? You can look at your Bible and say, how many hymns of praise are there in this visions? Chapter four and five. Rachel said four. Four, okay. Chandrasega two. Four. Chandrasega two. Okay. Asha five. Nine, okay. <clears throat> Divya five. Five. Uh, <clears throat> the scene in somebody else. The scene in heaven uh, culminates in worship. Uh, it is all directed towards God on his throne. In this vision, that's in chapters four and five, there are five great hymns of praise. Now, if you study this vision carefully, uh, each time the size of the choir gradually increases, uh, which Quite often we don't notice that, but if we pay attention, each time the size of the choir also increases. Let me uh, point out those five hymns. Uh, the first one is in Revelation 4:8. Uh, the only there are only the four living creatures in this place. Day and night they never stop saying, "Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come." This is the first hymn of praise. Uh, in the second hymn of praise, I said uh, the size of the choir increases. Now there are four living creatures. And in the second hymn, the 24 elders join in. That is in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, okay, that's the second hymn. And in the third hymn, they also bring in the musical instrument. Harps are added to the vocal praise. This is the third hymn in Revelation 5.8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Uh, this is the third uh, hymn of praise. Now, in the fourth hymn, 
the rest of the angels add their voices. You see the size of the choir gradually increases. In 511, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And now comes the final hymn that is in 513. All created beings in the universe join in the mighty chorus of praise to God. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying. That's the, so there are five hymns of praise. Uh, in other words, worship is what uh, John is describing. Uh, worship is what's taking place in heaven. Uh, this is wonderful. This is a glorious vision. When you realize the size of the choir also increases, so you can imagine the glory and the splendor of the throne room. And let's come to the next verses, Revelation 4, 8 and 9. But day and night they never stop saying, Holy, Holy, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne uh, and who lives forever and ever. Uh, when you are talking about holiness, it is basically yeah, God's complete separation from evil in any and every form. God is separated from evil in any and every form. Now, the elders, whenever there is worship taking place, they fall down and they lay down their crowns as a sign of their homage. Uh, in many cultures, when, when a big man comes, uh, people will take their caps from their hair, okay, they'll remove their caps, and they'll bow before that uh, big, the, uh, important person as a sign of respect. Now here also, they lay, they lay down their crowns as a sign of their homage, as a respect. Uh, in, in other words, as a drama, dramatic acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, uh, that's what they're doing. The crowns are God's gifts and appropriately given back to God in worship. An important lesson we can learn is whatever we give, a gift we get from God, we should give it back to God in worship. This is an important lesson we learn. True worship is when we lay down our crowns, all that we have received from God, and we give it back to God in worship. That's true worship. Now, the worship is going on endlessly, ceaselessly in heaven. But we should not uh, misunderstand this. The ceaseless worship of the four living creatures does not imply that this worship is their sole activity, but rather that is, it is their constant disposition. Their every action is an expression of adoration. Uh, this is an important lesson for us. When God calls us to worship, 
It doesn't mean we have to kneel down all the 24 hours, uh, 12 hours, and that's what is worship. That's not. Uh, every work that we do, uh, even as you do your office work, if you have that constant disposition of adoring God, uh, working for God, that is worship. As you are cooking, and if you have that constant disposition that your cooking can also be an expression of adoration. So we should realize that it reflects only the constant disposition. disposition. Every action of us from morning till now, everything that we did should be an expression of adoration. That is worship. Uh, Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, holy, holy, holy. That's, that's how they keep uh, saying that. In other words, holy, holy, holy. Uh, it is when the threefold repetition, it only talks about the superlative degree. God is holy. There's no one besides him. God alone is the holiest, more powerful, and the everlasting one. The last verse, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Today we have uh, completed chapter 4. If you have any questions, now you can, there's question time. So Catherine has asked, come up here. Why did God ask John to come up? Next one, why did elders praise God differently compared to how the living creatures praise God? Uh, and uh, verse 8, uh, day and night was mentioned. What is its significance, uh, significance in heavenly realm? Pastor, you want to answer? Yeah, why did uh, John, uh, why did God call uh, John to come up? You know, uh, God did the same thing to Moses and um, God wants uh, John to come out from all the distractions. You know, it's a call for all of us. You know, it is just not a vision that uh, John had and God calling him to come up uh, for us to get uh, you know, the, the vision of God and to hear from God and to know God better, it is important that we uh, climb up from where we are to the place where God wants us to come. It's very, very important. And uh, so just a symbolic one, God is asking him to come up as God said to Moses. And uh, why do the elders uh, praise God differently compared to how the living creatures praise God? You know, it talks about variety, no stereotype. Okay. And, uh, you know, like we find that uh, some churches and some denominations say this is right, that is right. Uh, but here you find it just uh, shows us uh, the variety with which we can praise God. You know, the, the, the elders were praising differently. The living creatures were praising differently. Earlier there was only vocal and then the music comes in. And, uh, you know, so, so many things, you know, it's a variety. Uh, so we can praise God, you know, we, we have in our cities, you know, beautiful uh, acoustic guitars as, you know, electric guitars and uh, all the other equipments. Uh, but when you go to a village church, 
when we go to a village things are different okay they have a small drum and do so it's a variety and then uh, why day and night was mentioned what is its significance in heavenly realm uh, verse 8 i have to see that verse 8 pastor if you know you can answer this i'll just take the verse it is, uh, it's basically to say that worship is going on continuously uh, we don't have to uh, split our head 12 hours daytime 12 hours nighttime basically to say there is a ceaseless worship is going on continuously that's all and as i said worship we we shouldn't take it as that's their only act of work our disposition should be an act of adoration uh pastor i have a question from uh, you had mentioned revelation 211 pastor like when we are reading the apocalyptic literature like i want to know where do we know that this is to be taken literally and this is to be taken figuratively because here we read that there is no longer any sea and we uh, like we interpreted it literally right that there is no longer sea in heaven but the other things we take it figuratively so how do we arrive at what to take uh the final chapters are, are conclusive for us it gives us mm -hmm. a reference point for us okay because where the heaven comes down oh uh, we had this same thing last week also i remember correctly i said the apocalyptic visions are fluid in nature huh. not stresses stresses beyond a point so he is just mentioning uh, describing the temple okay the the temple they had they had the sea of glass that's what the, the temple built by solomon uh, but we should not like we said day and night uh, in heaven there is nothing known as day and night as such yeah because god's presence there's no sun uh, god's presence is the light so we don't take this as uh, literally meaning that it's a 24 hours day uh so day and night 24 hours we should not take it like that. understood i there are no more questions thank you for all the questions and for your answers and for your responses uh it makes us think a uh, little deeper thank you so much uh, shall we say this prayer as a closing prayer you are worthy oh lord and god to receive me glory and honor and power for you created all things by your will they were created and have their being amen may the grace of our lord jesus christ unfailing love of our heavenly father and the sweet fellowship of the holy spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore amen, amen. thank you all thank you pastor 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 thank you pastor